0: Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I'm very excited to have my friend Harper Spiro on the show today. Harper and I go way, way back, and she has an incredible podcast called Made Visible. Harper's story is really inspiring and I think touches upon a lot of different things that we're seeing today, especially post-pandemic. During her fast-paced career in marketing, PR, and event production, spanning beauty, music, tech, Harper's life came to a halt with a life-altering surgery due to her rare immunodeficiency, hyper-IgE syndrome. And after living quietly with her invisible illness for nearly three decades, Harper's surgery was the straw that broke her silence, leading to the creation of Made Visible podcast, but also sharing her writing with the world, in addition to her business consulting and coaching. She's been featured in Health, Forbes, Well and Good, and more, and she's really aiming to uplift the voices of those living with invisible illness. She consults with companies and solopreneurs, creates content for brands, hosts writing classes, give talks on business, wellness, beyond. And she's on the board of trustees for the Immune Deficiency Foundation. She's from New York and now lives in Tel Aviv. And I was on your show when I had my breast cancer story. So Harper, I'm so excited to have you on. I am so happy we got to see each other when I came to Israel last May. And it's great to see you today. Welcome to Leave Your Mark. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here as a long, long, long time listener. Thrilled
1: to be on the other side.
0: Give us a quick background on where you're from and what you studied in school.
1: Yeah, of course. So originally from New York City, have a lot of pride being from New York, never lived above 23rd Street and love telling people that. I went to Northeastern and studied communications And then I finished up at Marymount, Manhattan, not loving Boston, not needing to get back to New York, and doing communications there as well. How did you get your first job? My first job was actually in high school. We were required to find a few months in our senior year after we had already gotten into college to find a role that was like a few-week internship. And it was my dad's friend who ran this music marketing firm. And she had me come in probably once or twice a week for, let's say, six or eight weeks. And my responsibility was to sit in a conference room and watch music videos and make note of any time there was any sort of profanity or too much nudity. If there was a little (laughs) too much boob, too much belly button, I had to make note and say, okay, second, blah, blah, blah you know, we can't have this being out in the world. So that was my responsibility at that internship.
0: Oh, my God, that's so funny and how the world has changed. But did that give you the marketing PR bug?
1: That was definitely the starting point. I mean, my dad owns a media buying agency. So I was always aware of that industry. But one of my first jobs after that was when I returned from Boston and moved back to New York, my parents said, okay, you need to work or you need to go back to school. You can't just live under our roof and like live this New York life at 20 years old. And I found a job while I was in school in the PR department at Bobby Brown Cosmetics. Oh my God, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I was in the PR team there, but I was an intern and one of my managers left very shortly into my time there and they didn't replace her for a while. So while I was in school taking PR 101, I was running like all the blogger relations for Bobby Brown cosmetics. And my manager would send me emails being like, deal with this person, this small little town blogger or these people in New York, send them stuff, but not knowing that bloggers would become bloggers. I mean, this was 2005. I'm sure you can go through your head who some of these people were back in that day that I was running this, not realizing that this would become the world that we live in now.
0: In a funny way, back in 2005, I mean, honestly, I don't even think I knew the word blogger in 2005. I was definitely a couple of years later than that. But interestingly, in the early days, and certainly back then, they were like the stepchildren. You got like the crappy job, basically. Totally.
1: I mean, my manager would really be like, here, deal with these guys. They're useless. Don't send product, just send press releases. <laughs> I mean, it was really like, they're not valuable. We didn't know that they meant anything. And now they're probably doing a lot better than a lot of the editors at major magazines.
0: Yes, I think the tides have changed, although editors have caught on, They have decided to also make their own personal brands, which I think is great. But you know, some of those magazines never allowed any of them to have any sort of personal brand.
1: No, for sure. So it's interesting to see some of these people. I follow some of them on social media. I'm like, wow, they're still doing it all these years later. But I loved working in PR and I love the sort of client relations and obviously being amongst product. I've always been a product junkie. So it was such an amazing opportunity to be able to be amongst this brand of products and have amazing, amazing mentors that I worked with and still have connections with to this day.
0: A lot of people probably don't realize that the secret to PR is really in the way that you build relationships. What are some tips you can give listeners on how to build authentic relationships?
1: I think one of my biggest things is just being yourself and finding ways to connect with people that are like-minded. I mean, you know, I love our story of how we met, and I think it's no different than what you're asking here, which is, hey, I've been following this person for a while. And I realize that you have the same hatred of saying Happy New Year past week one of January or the Wednesday after Thanksgiving. We're done with hope you had a great Thanksgiving meeting people where they are. Seriously, that's how you and I met on Twitter. It's so funny. Here we are all these years later. And to think about the connection that we've built at this point. But I think ultimately, it really is about meeting people where they are seeing something that you can connect with them on and say, oh, I saw that you posted about X on Instagram or I read on your bio that you've dealt with Y. That's something that people can go, oh, you get it. I even think about it and I'm sure you can get this also. I get pitches for my podcast. And when someone sends a pitch, oh, I love your podcast. It doesn't really do it for me. But if someone says, I listened to this episode with Aliza Lichts. And I love that she spoke about XYZ. They actually did their research and it shows that people care. And so that to me is such a game changer and takes such little effort and time to go that extra distance to actually make people feel like you know who they're talking to. And I respond to publicists all the time before I relaunched my podcast when they pitch me people that are completely unrelated to the topic of Made Visible being like, you should do your research because... You're pitching me business people that have no connection to invisible illness. And they all of a sudden shut down and don't know how to
0: respond because they didn't do their research. They didn't do their due diligence. It's such a valuable lesson. And you don't have to be in PR to take this and really learn from it. It's like life 101. But also my favorite pitches are the ones where someone is literally pitching me talent that has already been an episode. Like, Come on. Oh, I've had that too. Like, why don't you just look at the roster? <sighs> That's really scary. So, you start, you know, building your career in PR, you're obviously a natural at it, you had huge success. What happened with your health? Tell us a little bit about how you discovered your illness and then what that led to as far as your career.
1: So, I had eight jobs in 10 years. Jumped around often constantly looking for a better team, better product, better manager, and ultimately ended up in a position, thanks to one of my old bosses at Bobby Brown, I was working at a beauty PR firm. And I was in my highest paying role, biggest title, running a new department. And all of a sudden, I would walk down the street of New York City, maybe two blocks, and feel like I was completely winded. And I'd have to stand up against the wall of a building feeling like I was going to collapse. And as a native New Yorker, that was really scary to me, especially when I could walk a hundred blocks without thinking anything of it. It was terrifying. So I went to my GP and my GP listened to my lungs and did some basic tests and said, all right, maybe it's bronchitis. Maybe it's pneumonia, but ultimately didn't think it was anything serious, gave me antibiotics and sent me on my way. This went on for three months. This job that I was in was super high stress and crazy hours. And ultimately, my mom came to me and was like, enough. Nothing has changed. You still don't feel right. You don't sound right. You have this heavy, heavy cough that sounds like a smoker's cough. You got to do something about this. So I ended up going to a pulmonologist at NYU who did a few tests. And the next day she called me and said, are you sitting down? Which no one ever wants to hear that from a doctor on a saturday oh my god that's not very good bedside matter agreed i love her dearly but it was definitely a tough one and her follow-up question was are you with your parents and i was 27 at the time but my mom had been at the appointment with me the day before so i said no they're at the gym you know i can call you back when i'm with them she said no let's talk now and she said you have a cyst the size of a golf ball in your right lung and you need to have surgery immediately to remove it And everything about my life is before that call and after that call. It was such a defining moment. If she continued talking, I have no idea what she said. I completely blacked out. But it was this like, what do I do now? And ultimately what happened is I was diagnosed, as you said at the top of the show, with a super rare immune deficiency when I was 10 years old. It took 10 years to get diagnosed. But everything that I had dealt with, with my health prior to that, was really manageable. It never really interfered with me living my life, having a career, having friendships, being out in the world. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh, this is from my condition. And there's a lot of people living with lung issues related to my condition that I had never had to deal with at that point. And so I called the immunologist who had diagnosed me with my condition to say, hey, Here's what's going on. What should I do? Everyone's saying I need to get the surgery. And she said, if you have the surgery, you'll die. What? Oh, yeah. So I have this woman I met yesterday saying, you must do this. And this person who diagnosed me after 10 years of no one diagnosing me saying, you will not make it out.
0: Okay, sorry. Why, though?
1: Because it's such a complicated surgery. It was risky to go in and just not knowing what would happen and knowing that there were other bad cases of people with my condition who had the surgery. So ultimately, my parents and I went down to the National Institutes of Health, which had been studying my condition for years. There's only 300 of us diagnosed in the world.
0: 300? Wow, I didn't realize that. It was so rare. Oh my God. Oh yeah. So we went down there and met with
1: this team and they were incredible. And they basically said, you got to do this surgery. There's nothing else we can do. I hadn't had a CAT scan in 17 years since I had had this random bout of pneumonia. So we don't know to this day, 11 years later, how long the cyst was living in my lung. So everyone agreed, you got to do the surgery. It is risky. Here's some of the bad stories we've had, but you got to do it. And so on March 5th, 2012, I had surgery at NYU in New York and removed a quarter of my right lung. And thankfully, the surgery was very successful. The surgeon and doctor and everyone was very pleased. But basically, ever since, I've been dealing with lung issues. And interestingly, what they removed from my lung is something called aspergillus, which is a form of mold. And I was living in an old West Village apartment at the time. And to this day, we don't know if it was just, you know, mold in the walls or what was going on there.
0: Oh, wow. That sounds highly likely that that is a culprit. Thank you for sharing all that. So you're done with your surgery. Obviously, thank God, you know, it went well. How at that point were you thinking about your life, your career, your work?
1: As I said, everything is this like before and after from the surgery time. And I suddenly realized that I needed to prioritize my health, my mental health. And it was something that I never thought to do. I mean, in navigating my life for 27 years, I was just trying to fit in with my friends, just trying to live my life, enjoy, go out, have fun, travel, and never really made my health a priority. And all of a sudden, I realized I needed to. And as much as I loved working in beauty and loved skincare and makeup, I realized that it was not my passion professionally. I needed to take care of my well-being and working in that job. That was not going to happen. So I decided to start exploring options. I ended up hiring a career coach who, looking back, I can't even believe she helped me, but I was in such a dark place at that time that anyone would get me out of the rut that I was in. And I ended up going to a company where I did event production and marketing for nonprofits and health and wellness brands. And I know a lot of our common friends, our connections through there. And for me, it was a place where my boss prioritized personal development and wellness. And I could take care of myself and work from home certain days. And that was the norm. It wasn't me asking for major accommodations. It was just accepted. Wow, Huge. We're talking 2014. I mean, this is pre-pandemic, very different world. and for me, it was a realization that no matter how long I stayed there, it would be my last job before I started my business, knowing that I had the accommodations that I did there.
0: So let's give this boss a shout out because you know, obviously leave your more community, I mentor the members, and there was a situation last week with quite the opposite boss for somebody. And she ended up quitting because she's like, I'm out. I'm not dealing with this anymore. So who was it? And where was it?
1: (laughs) Rachel Goldstein at Agent of Change.
0: Oh, I love Rachel. Oh, yay. Shout
1: out, Rachel. But it's interesting because with her, I knew her. I had volunteered at Urban Zen years prior with her. And I reached out to her just sort of saying, I'm not really sure what your company does, but... I've always been following your career, any chance you have any openings, and that was it.
0: I had a job. That's amazing. So Rachel is very close family friends with Donna, Karen, and Gabby, and we were always together in one way or another when I worked there. That's amazing. Okay, so that is a wonderful experience to note because for everyone listening, there are bosses out there who actually do care about their employees. It's interesting. Someone DM'd me the other day a video of this guy who basically said, like, if you are pursuing happiness, don't look for it in your job. You'll never find it in your job. And I actually saw it. I was like, that's not true. You can find happiness in a job. It's one type of happiness. For sure. But I think it's just great to pinpoint it because there are so many bosses who are so disappointing
1: yeah and I'll give you an example I mean one of the events that we did was a several day women's conference and it was going to be these crazy long hours over a weekend it was just gonna be really intense and one of our clients was the David Lynch Foundation who teaches transcendental meditation and it was one of the perks of doing an event with them was we were able to learn transcendental meditation. Which changed my life. And I remember sending Rachel an email right before this three or four day event saying, I'm really attached to my TM practice. I know that typically when I do TM is when I'm back home. But since we're going to be here all day, all night, is it okay if I take 20 minutes to meditate in the middle of the work day? And she responded something along the lines of like, I don't know why you're asking. Like, of course, if this is what you need to do to be the best version of yourself, like go do that for 20 minutes. Just make sure people know like this is where you are and you'll be back in 20 minutes. And I don't understand why that can't be the norm. You know, it's thinking about people going to yoga classes in the middle of the work day or needing a walk. If you can be productive and get work done and make sure your clients are happy and everything is taken care of, I don't think it matters where you are in the world and like what structure your day is as long as the job gets done.
0: I agree. However, just pointing out a LinkedIn post that one of the Leave Your Mark members reposted the other day. I don't follow this person, but I saw it on her feed. Someone who dealt with postpartum, came back to work, and really was having a hard time, needed some accommodations. And the manager just looked at it as a nuisance, like she's not totally back. And no one really asked her how she was. And she ended up quitting that day. She's like, I can't do this. So when we talk about advocacy, especially self-advocacy, do you feel like managers are open to listen to special accommodations today? I mean, we talk about mental health in the workplace. We talk about invisible illness. Some of these conversations are really hard to have. And also you don't want to, have like a stigma or like a mark against you that you're not able to like give a hundred percent to the job. So how would you recommend people navigate those discussions with their managers?
1: I think that it's happening more and more in the workplace. I think that people are getting more open and receptive to having those conversations and realizing that they want to work at places where they can be fully themselves I mean, I just saw a Facebook post a few minutes before we started recording of a woman saying that she takes her wedding ring off before she goes into job interviews because she has heard that hiring managers assume that you're then gonna have a baby soon and then gonna go on maternity leave. Oh my God. Like, how are people functioning this way? Is this really happening in the workplace? So I do think that changes are happening. And I think one of the benefits, I hate saying it, of the pandemic is that employers are realizing that they need to prioritize the health and mental health of their employees. And that to your point, a lot of people are leaving because if they're not taken care of and basic accommodations aren't being made, they don't want to work in these places. I just had an Instagram live earlier this week with one of my past guests on made visible, Hannah Olson, who started a business called Disclo, D-I-S-C-L-O, where she helps companies help their employees disclose what they're going through whether it's fertility related disability invisible illness I love that and it's so brilliant because she just realized how many employers want to support their employees but the employees are scared to be forthcoming about what they're going through and so it's a safe way to do that and I think those kind of ways to make people feel like okay here's your contract you know all the information you get from HR up front and that's part of it. I mean, normalizing that and making people feel like they can be themselves in the workplace is so, so important.
0: So it's funny. I'm a huge proponent of accommodations and being able to have those discussions as a hiring manager, but also as someone who would like to benefit from that if I needed them. I'm not totally game for bringing your whole self to work. And I talk about it a lot more in on-brand. But I don't know that everyone's whole self is appropriate for work. And I don't think people understand how to draw those boundaries. What would you say?
1: I think that's accurate. And I think it's interesting seeing what's happening with LinkedIn these days and how it's completely shifted. I feel like when Roe versus Wade was overturned, people started talking about their abortions on there. And it was sort of shocking to see. And I think there's a part of me that's like, All about advocacy and thrilled to see people are talking about this and being transparent. And at the same time, what's work and what's your home life? And I think there's like the boundaries are not totally clear. Yeah. I think it depends on who the person is and what the company is and what you're looking for from the company to accommodate you with. You know, there's employee resource groups and heads of disability and heads of wellness at many companies. And I think they're trying to make people feel more supported and seen and taken care of in companies. Thinking of some of my past podcast guests and people who have been in my writing classes who have certain ailments that need to be taken seriously that if something happens in the workplace, them disclosing about it in advance is going to benefit everyone in case something is to happen.
0: 100%.
1: So whether it's something like having an EpiPen or something of that nature, a medication that's in the drawer in case someone has some sort of flare up and needs help. Those kind of things are absolutely crucial. But if it doesn't interfere with your work, and you can continue to do your work 100%, maybe it's not necessary to disclose.
0: Well, here's a perfect segue then, because your show is made visible. So a lot of times people seem totally fine. And you always have that employer that's like, she's fine. She's not really sick. I mean, what inspired you to create that show? I can imagine it would be for people not understanding that you needed accommodations when you did.
1: I think it really does go back to my last job before Agent of Change, where I had my surgery. And I remember going to my boss and saying, hey, you know, I'm about to have the surgery. Thanks for being flexible with all these doctor's appointments. Obviously, this is not what I want to be doing with my life, but it's what I've got to prioritize. And she was super compassionate for a period of time. And then when I was on medical leave for several months and I had just started this department that was going to help build her business and grow her business, she was no longer game as much as she had been. And I, looking back, understand it because, again, I was like developing something and it was all me. And so I think there's this boundary of like, how can you be compassionate? And at the same time, make sure that your work gets done. And I was not capable of giving her what she needed at that time.
0: That's a really fair way of looking back on it.
1: Yeah, I definitely didn't look at it that way in real time. I was sort of like, what an asshole. Why is she not (laughs) realizing? But I think the point is is exactly what you're saying is visibly I looked fine when I came into the office. There was no cast, there was no patch, there was no walker, nothing that made it seem like something was going on. But internally, I was not okay. And so the reason that I started Made Visible is because I would go online and I would look for content that resonated with me and stories of people who were out there, whether they lived in New York or not, that had health issues, but were thriving in life. And I was not finding that. I was finding a lot of really depressing stories of people that I couldn't relate to. And even Mm -hmm. being in a Facebook group of people with my condition, most of them or many of them are a lot sicker than I am. So going in there, I also didn't feel like I could connect with them. So where were my people? So that's when I decided to launch Made Visible and identify people in my own network and then obviously beyond who live with invisible illnesses and are not defined by it.
0: It's so great and it's so important. So what brought you to the coaching space and the consulting space? We're going back
1: to Rachel Goldstein again. Rachel had me come into a meeting one day with no explanation of why I was going into this meeting. And that was common. She would bring me into new business meetings all the time, no real prep, knowing that I could handle it. And we sat in this meeting with a coach named Steph Ziv And she was sort of talking Rachel through coaching practices. And at the end of the session, she put her card sort of across the table to me. And I immediately went back to my desk, wrote her an email and said, what just happened in there? What do you do? How do I do that? How do you get clients like I need more of this? And that was it. I was sold on coaching. So I started putting feelers out to people in the world of who has a coach, who knows a coach. I wanna talk to everybody and realize that similar to you, everyone was already coming to me as a coach informally. I just didn't have the title or the salary attached to it. And so I went through coaching training back in 2014 while still working at Agent of Change, garnered the tools that helped me become a coach. And at the same time that I was about to launch my business and see how it would go, things were changing at Agent of Change and rachel said how do you feel about going freelance and i was thrilled so it allowed me to have some income and do some work for rachel and then to build my business and that's what i've done over eight years now and what are the aspects of coaching that you do so my clients are all solopreneurs and small business owners they're people who have an idea for a business and want to get it out in the world and don't know where to start A lot of people have some clients and are doing some work, but haven't officially launched. So they need me to help with their marketing and getting themselves out there and doing what you and I do so well. And then there are a lot of people who have been in business for many years that need me to come and look under the hood and say, what's wrong here? What's not working well? Where can we create some more structure? A lot of people refer to me as their CMO or COO
0: externally. I love it. I love it. One of your superpowers is the follow-up. You are just follow-up, follow-through. You and I, were cut from the same cloth in that sense. Tell us about any hacks you have to sort of stay on top of your communication. You never drop the ball on an introduction. You say you're going to do. A lot of people do. How do you manage all of it?
1: I star emails that I haven't heard back from people on. So if I send an email to someone I've never been in touch with and I want to make sure that I stay on it and if they don't respond, I will follow up, I star them. So several times a day, I go into my start inbox and see what's in there and what hasn't been touched in a while. And then I put reminders in my calendar of follow up with certain people. If someone says be in touch on a certain day, I'll do exactly that. When I know that someone's on vacation, I'll make sure to give them like a week until after vacation, knowing that they're digging out their inbox. So really just being mindful of where people are at in their life, you know, the Monday after a holiday, while I'm not saying hope you had a great holiday, I'm also not emailing a lot of people. I'm sorry, I had to.
0: (laughs) I support, I support. I think those are great tips, but I'm curious. What's the average amount of times in general lately you feel you have to follow up to actually get a response?
1: Majority. Most people do not respond to the first email. So, a lot of the work that I'm doing right now, I mentioned employee resource groups and heads of disability. I am getting in with companies and offering ways to support their employees living with invisible illnesses. So I'm dealing with corporate more than I've ever dealt with in my entire life. And it's a lot of people either making introductions for me or giving me email addresses and these people are not expecting to hear from me. So I am responding two or three times before a lot of these people are getting back to me, but they are. But I'm definitely finding that 99% of the time, people do not respond after the first email, period.
0: So when you're sending the second email, do you say like, hey, I just want to make sure you got this? Or like, what's the verbiage for each of the follow-ups? I'm curious because there's a fine line between being really good at follow-up or being annoying at follow-up.
1: Totally. I could not agree more. And that sort of goes back to the publicist emails of people looking to pitch you for a podcast and then not doing their due diligence and then responding and responding and responding. And ultimately I go, this is not a good fit, right? Like enough, stop reaching out to me. So my follow-up email often says, uh, just wanted to check in and see if you'd like to get time on the calendar. And also I would include something that I'm working on that's relevant to them. So last week, an episode of the UBS podcast came out where I interviewed one of their employees about her life with an invisible illness in the workplace. And so with a lot of these companies, I wanna be able to say, Hey, I did this with UBS, so I can do it with you also. So giving them those little sprinklings, and I'm getting responses very quickly. There was one person who I reached out to twice. She never responded. The minute I sent the UBS
0: link, she responded in seconds. Oh, I love that. That's so good. One of the things you've said, which I love, is create what you wish already existed. Tell us a little bit about that mantra.
1: I think it is relevant to everything in my life. I mean, I started my coaching business because I wanted to support other people, solopreneurs, and didn't find a coach that felt similar to me. You know, when I say I want to hire a coach myself, I want myself as the coach or I want you as my coach, you know, someone similar to our vibe. And so I really create these opportunities that I wish existed in the world. When I launched Made Visible, I was the first one to do that. And when I saw within months of launching, more than 10 competitors came out and none of them exist to this day. They were all short-lived podcasts, realizing how hard the market is, obviously. And so for me, it's really identifying moments of where are people struggling and not finding that there's content or community around a certain topic and how can I provide that? And, you know, what's interesting is recently I felt like, wow, why can't there be a community that I just joined? Why do I have to be the builder of this? But at the same time, I would want to do it my way anyway.
0: That's probably true. All right. Last <laughs> question, Harper. How do you ultimately want to leave your mark?
1: For me, it's really about owning my health. And so taking care of myself, not being defined by my health. And helping other people, especially those with invisible illnesses, share their story, be honest with themselves, and also not be defined by their illness.
0: I love it. It's so great. I mean, I love what you do. I love you as a human, as a friend. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Elisa. Adore you. Adore you back. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at AlizalichtXO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Alizalicht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalicht.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.